Matthew chapter 21, we pick it up at verse 12. And uh, Matthew writes, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, have you never read uh, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. And so if you're tuning in, you're here. <laughs> you guys have been with us through the entire study. But if you're turning in, tuning in, you're new with us. We've been engaged in this uh, in-depth study of the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning we come to a very beautiful section of the book. You know, of course, it's all beautiful. Uh, it's all wonderful. It's all amazing. You know, to have the Word of God, the wisdom of God, the revelation of Himself, and the plan of salvation in our hands, in our laps, to have the Bible... I mean, how valuable is that to you this morning? Man, it's infinitely uh, valuable. It's in reality just priceless. And that's why we want to study it. That's why we want to study it, to seek to know it, to apply it to our, our lives. Now, just by way of reminder, Jesus has just made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And you recall last week we read that the whole city was shaken as Jesus enters in and the people are crying out, Hosanna, save now. And Luke's gospel tells us that as Jesus drew near to the city, he began to weep over it. He weeps because Jesus knows the destruction that's ahead of the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem in particular. Um, all because they failed to uh, know the day of their visitation. They failed to know the word of God and to understand that uh, this particular day was a day that was prophesied many, many years earlier, the day when the Messiah would uh, come into the city, the day the, the Savior of the world would enter into the city. And you know what? Truly for half-hearted believers and unbelievers, uh, you need to understand that there's a judgment that is coming ahead. Uh, you know, God has sent a son into the world for the purpose of, of saving those who are lost and to reject his salvation or just give some type of mental assent to the fact, yeah, Jesus is the son of God, but to fail to give your life over to him, to live a life that's pleasing to him in obedience to him, it breaks Jesus's heart and he weeps over you. And, uh, you know, Jesus knows that a life of rejection or a life of a half-hearted, lukewarm commitment to the Lord, it's only going to lead to disaster, okay? There's no security in just saying, Lord, Lord. The only security that's going to be found in, in this life, which is going to translate into salvation and eternal life, can only be found in a complete surrender to Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. Well, as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, Matthew tells us, verse 12, 
Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. So we want to understand as Jesus goes into the temple, he sees what's going on and he begins to overturn these tables. You know, it's not an outburst of wrath that results, you know, it's coupled with this blind rage. It's not like that. Jesus is not acting in the flesh here. You know, we can lose control. Uh, we can lose our temper. We can lash out at uh, the situation or at people. And, and we do that at times because of our sin nature. But Jesus, however, he's not losing control here. He saw what was going on. He saw the corruption and he's moved with righteous indignation. And there are things that are going on in this world that should make us very angry. You know, there should be a righteous indignation that uh, wells up in our hearts uh, because of things that are occurring during our watch here in this world. You know, we're to be the salt of the earth. We're to have a preserving influence in the world. Uh, our lives are to make people thirsty for the truth. And Jesus also said that we're to be the light of the world, that we are the light of the world is what he said. You know, our lives are to bring illumination to truth. And that truth is the truth of the gospel. Um, there should be a righteous indignation welling up inside of us. And we should stand against the wrong that's going on in our world. We should love the things that God loves and we should hate the things that God hates. And, uh, you know, I know that that's not always the politically correct thing to say, but, you know, it's okay. I don't really care. Jesus in his day and age, he wasn't very politically correct either. So, um, yeah. Verse 12 says, then Jesus went into the temple. And we want to understand one of the main purposes for the temple was a sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was given to Israel by God. It was established by God. It started very early in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. Well, you know, I probably need to correct myself uh, there. That's not entirely the case. According to the New Testament, Eve sinned being um, deceived, but Adam on the other hand, he willfully sinned. He didn't want to go through eternity without his bride. And in that, Adam becomes a picture of Jesus Christ, who's called in the New Testament, the second Adam, right? Jesus didn't want an eternity without his bride. So he willfully took our sin, becoming sin for us, the Bible says. But for all practical purposes, we'll say that Adam and Eve sinned. And afterwards, they tried to make garments uh, out of fig leaves. And seriously, every time I think about it, it makes me laugh. Like how smart was Adam and Eve really? I mean, have you ever seen a fig leaf? Have you ever handled a fig leaf? Um, you know, who in their right mind would think that that would make a good garment? Uh, okay, it's, it's, it's not like a prickly pear. It's not like a cactus, but it's pretty close, man. Fig leaves, they're fairly abrasive. They're rough. They got to be itchy and uncomfortable against your skin. But as the story unfolds, we learned that the fig leaf uh, weren't, the fig leaves, they weren't acceptable to God. The fig leaves represent an Adam and Eve's uh, own efforts, their works to cover their sin. But God, in his love and in his mercy, made for them, we read in Genesis, 
tunics of skin and clothe them. So we want to ask ourselves, where do you get tunics of skin? Where did they come from? And the answer is something innocent had to die. Something without any sin had to die uh, in order that Adam and Eve could be properly clothed uh, before God. And this was the beginning of the sacrificial system. It started out for a couple. But then as you move forward through the Bible, you see the lamb was to be sacrificed for a family during Passover. It's so interesting. The nation of Israel were to mark their doorposts and their lintels uh, with the blood of the Passover lamb. And that's the shape of a cross. And the Hebrew says that you were to strike violently. You would strike violently the doorposts and the lintels, right? Uh, the doorposts and the lintels, you would mark with the blood and that's the shape of the cross. And where the blood of the lamb was seen on the doorposts and lintels, God's wrath would pass over that household and the whole household would be saved. God was establishing the sacrificial system where couples were saved and later on entire families were saved. And as you continue through the Old Testament, you come to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. You know, it was a day where a sacrifice was made for the entire nation. Now, before the temple, God had the tabernacle built and it was a heavenly model, or sorry, it was an earthly model of a heavenly reality. And he established the sacrificial system so that sinful man could know a holy God. So that he could enter into God's presence and fellowship with him. And this could only happen through the death of the innocent in place of the guilty. Now, again, interestingly enough, in regards to the tabernacle, there was only one entrance. There was only one way in, one way to enter into God's presence in order to have fellowship with him. And the only way was through uh, a sacrifice. And as you come into the tabernacle courts, you would immediately be um, confronted with a brazen altar, which is where the sacrifice was made. And there would be blood everywhere. It was only through the shedding of innocent blood that sinful man could have any type of relationship with the holy God. You know, God is faced with this serious dilemma. God is a God of justice. He's a just judge. And there are many unjust judge, judges in the world today. Uh, God is not an unjust judge. He's holy, he's righteous, and he's just. And that's not part of who he is. That is actually who he is. And as a just judge, when punishment needs to be meted out, God justly meets out punishment. All mankind is sin, and if God failed to judge sin, he would no longer be just. And therein lies the problem. God loves all mankind and would rather extend mercy uh, than exercise judgment. But if he failed to judge sin, taking a, you know, a, a boys will be boys kind of attitude, uh, it would make him an unjust judge. And so that's where the sacrificial system comes into play. The punishment is poured out on the innocent animal in place of the guilty sinner so that the uh, just God can remain just and be in fellowship with man whom he loves. God is also holy and his wrath burns towards sin. 
And it's on the innocent sacrifice that God's wrath is poured out upon as a, a substitute in place for sinful man. And that allows God to remain holy and have a relationship with sinful man. So this is the background for the sacrificial system. Now, over time, the tabernacle uh, had grown into the temple. And we read Matthew 21, verse 12, that Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out those who bought and sold in the temple. And again, we don't want to miss the fact that Jesus isn't angry. Three years earlier, Jesus cleansed the temple and he grabbed some cords that the uh, animals were led in by and he fashions a whip out of them and he drove everyone out with all the animals of the temple. And now three years later, and we'll talk about the significance of that at the end of, end of our study, but three years later, we see Jesus angry in the temple again. What's Jesus so angry about? Well, we read he's angry and drives out those who bought and sold in the temple. What are they buying and selling? Uh, they're buying and selling pre-approved temple sacrifices. As the people came to offer their Passover lamb, you know, and many of the people, they traveled a great distance to be there in Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, but if, you know, along the way, that little lamb, you know, uh, one of its hoofs got a little bit worn or, you know, the ear looked like it was getting a little bit infected. You know, maybe the skin of that little lamb, sometime while on that trip, you know, a little abrasion appeared uh, there on that little lamb. You know, the priest would look at the lamb and they'd say, no, 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 no. I mean, come on, what are you trying to pull? You think you're going to offer uh, that to God? You know, is that what you're thinking? That's not an acceptable sacrifice. And so at a very inflated price, you would have to purchase a temple approved sacrifice. And when the priest, then the priest would say, you know, what are you going to do with that lamb that you brought with you? You're not going to take it back, are you? You know what? We'll take it off your hands for you. And they would buy that little lamb for significantly less than what it was worth. And after further inspection, you know, the lamb wasn't really as bad as they initially thought it was. And so they'd turn around and sell it as a temple approved sacrifice. And they were buying and selling uh, like this right within the, the temple courts. And that's why Jesus was angry. It was because his people who were coming uh, to worship and fellowship with God were being fleeced. And it made Jesus angry. And he's going to call the priests thieves in, in just a minute. But we read in verse 12 that Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers. Again, he's pretty angry. And again, we can't miss the fact that it's this righteous indignation. It's nothing like a sinful outburst that, you know, that we're prone to. Jesus must have been, in my mind, I look at this and it, it just makes me realize he must have had such a presence about himself. You know, he must have had such a command, such an authority about himself because he's able to drive everyone out of a 1,000 foot by 1,000 foot Temple Mount area. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed, you know, when you go into a certain churches or if you like to look at uh, certain, you know, artworks depicting Jesus, you know, but they often uh, portray Jesus as a very slight, 
almost frail man. You know, no way. That wasn't Jesus. Jesus was a man's man. I mean, he was a carpenter that worked with his hands. He worked in construction all of his life. And it's probably more likely that he was very fit and strong. So much so that when Pilate had Jesus scourged and he was still standing, Pilate said, behold the man. You know, a man who could withstand that type of brutality. I mean, it was a very commanding and strong Jesus who was able to drive everyone out of the Temple Mount area. Everyone who was buying and selling in the temple. People often think about, you know, Jesus, uh, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And it's true. Uh, Jesus is very gentle. Jesus described himself as gentle, uh, meek and humble, right? And we need to understand the meaning of meek when he says meek. Meek is a word that we don't often use anymore. Meek doesn't mean weak. Meek simply means your strength is under your control. And Jesus' strength was under his control when Jesus, when Judas betrayed him with a kiss, right? When Peter tried to save Jesus by drawing out a sword and lopping off Malchus's ear, by the way, uh, that was Jesus's last recorded miracle, restoring Malchus's ear, miraculously putting that ear back on his head, um, fixing the mess that uh, was created by one of his disciples. And, and, you know, Jesus has done a lot of that since then, hasn't he? Fixed the mess, the blunders of his disciples. But when Peter did that, Jesus said, Peter, you know, put that sword away. Do you not think that I could pray to my father and he will provide me provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. You know, to me, what's wild to think about there is in 2 Kings 19, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians, right? Jesus said he could call down 12 legions or 72,000 angels. I mean, do the math. If one angel could kill 185,000 people, and he could call down 12 legions, 72,000. Well, 185,000 times 72,000 is 13.32 billion. That's almost twice the population of the world today. With just a word, you know what? Jesus could have wiped out the entire population of the world many times over at that time. But Jesus doesn't do that. And the reason why is because his strength was under his control. He came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus said, John 10, 18, speaking of his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. Jesus was meek. His strength was under control. Meekness means that you're in control and you don't have to respond. But it also means there, there are times where you need to respond using your strength, right? Using your strength to stand up against, uh, you know, that which is wrong. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. Uh, and it's what we should be doing too. Again, we should use our strength to stand up against the things that are absolutely wrong in our world. Well, it says that Jesus overturned the table, uh, tables of the money changers. You know, what's that all about? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, it said that every male, every Jewish male over the age of 20 
uh, was to give a half shackle for the temple tax. And the people would come to Jerusalem with their Greek and Roman coins, uh, but the religious leaders of Israel, the high priests and the chief priests, they wouldn't accept coins with graven images on it. So in order for you to pay that temple tax, you know, and come and worship God, you had to exchange your money. And they, the money changers were there to just give you a very bad rate to give you temple coinage. Um, they gave you a very, very bad exchange rate. They were making money off of the people who were coming to genuinely worship God. And this angered Jesus, and he overturned the tables of the money changers. It's also interesting to note here that it doesn't say that Jesus overturned the cages of the doves, right? It says that he uh, turned over the seats of those that sold doves. And again, it's a sign of him being in control. Had he overturned the, the cages full of doves, that would have injured the birds. They're very fragile. And so, again, it's just a picture of him being in complete control. But why were there doves in the temple, uh, right? I thought it was Passover. Well, you know, there are other sacrifices going on. Other sacrifices going on. The law allowed people who were too poor to offer a lamb as a sacrifice. They could offer two doves or two pigeons, right? And that's why there were doves there in the temple precinct. Well, couldn't poor people bring their own doves and pigeons? Well, of course they could. But the chief priests, they would reject the poor person's doves because they weren't temple approved uh, doves. They weren't temple approved sacrifices. And in doing that, then they would force poor people to purchase at an exorbitant rate, you know, these pre-approved doves and pigeons. And if you didn't have the money to do that, you know what? Then you're not going to be able to offer God a sacrifice. I mean, they were taking full advantage of the poor. And you know, Jesus's heart uh, was for the poor. In Mark's gospel, in a parallel account, Mark eleven sixteen, 16, uh, Mark writes that Jesus also, he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. In other words, Jesus would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. This was yet another problem that was going on there in the temple. All of this is going on in what's called the court of the Gentiles. You know, you might, when you get home, uh, Google Herod's temple and, you know, might give you a little bit better understanding of where all of this is happening. But there are basically three courtyards there on the Temple Mount. The outermost court was the, the court of Gentiles, also known as the court of women. And, uh, you know, the next inner court uh, was uh, the court of Israel. Gentiles and women were not allowed in that court. Only Jewish males were allowed to enter it. And then the innermost court uh, was strictly for the priest. But they had turned this entire court of the Gentile area into something kind of like a swap meet. You know, maybe a, a stockyard would be a better description. You know, when you have sheep and cattle, you know, what do you have? You have very earthly smells. You know, you have sheep and cattle dung all over, you know. And the Temple Mount, you know, just smelt like a farm. 
It was, it was terrible. This was a place where the Gentiles were to come and to draw close to the Lord, to seek him and enter into a relationship with him. God's heart is always for the Gentiles. It wasn't just for the Jews. But if you were a Gentile who came to worship the Lord, you would be ushered into this court and uh, where all these booths were set up. And merchants are, you know, calling out to those who were pilgrims. And no doubt, many of those pilgrims, you know, they were rude and pushy. Because, you know, the Jews, uh, they looked down upon Gentiles as dogs. And so if you were there, you would be put off uh, over all the haggling over the prices, all the things that are going on, the terrible barnyard smells of the animal. And... Uh, uh, just so we can get a picture of what all of this kind of looked like. Um, Josephus tells us about 30 years after this event, about 65 AD, 267,000 uh, lambs were sacrificed uh, that year, 65 AD, during the Passover. And the estimate is 10 people per household. That's what it uh, says in Exodus, per lamb. And that leads us to uh, understand that Jerusalem during the Passover would swell to over two and a half million people during the time of the Passover. You know, the Temple Mount, if you haven't been there, it's a pretty large area. You know, maybe you can picture in your mind uh, a good-sized mall. But 200 or 2.5 million people, you know, that's a lot of people to get in and out of this area of the Temple grounds. And so to the... To the Gentile, it probably looked more like a religious circus than anything else. And that was where they were supposed to come and worship, where they were supposed to come and draw near to God. Not only was all of this going on, but then you had this tremendous irreverence going on on top of all of that. You know, you had these people, they're buying and selling the merchandise you know, as they, they uh, come for the Passover, you know, they're really busy going here and there. It's kind of a lot like maybe us getting ready for Christmas. We're going here, going there, trying to get the things that we need. And there was a shortcut. If you wanted to get to the other side of the temple, you could just cut through the, the court of the Gentiles to get there. So not only did you have all this buying and selling going on, you know, which was accompanied with all these barnyard smells, but you also had a busy push of people who wanted to cut a little time off their, their day by going through uh, this area, the, the uh, court of the Gentiles, instead of going around the perimeter of the temple. So there was this tremendous irreverence that was also going on, and Jesus is correcting it. And maybe you can come up with a better example, but to me, it would be like someone coming to church and instead of worshiping and praising God, they have their laptop out and they're returning emails, you know, uh, disturbing the people around them who've come to genuinely seek God's face, genuinely uh, worship the Lord, disturbing them with all the swooshes and bells and, and whistles that a laptop makes when you send and receive emails. Maybe another example might be somebody with their phone on speaker trying to talk to a friend while, you know, uh, people are trying to worship the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so what the people were doing, there, there's just this tremendous irreverence. 
And this was the area of the temple, you know, that was dedicated to the Gentiles so that they could come and meet with the holy God. Uh, and so uh, people were making a shortcut out of this area and they're using it to make a buck. You know, Jesus corrected their, their irreverence. And when Mark says he would not allow anyone, again, Jesus must have been quite a man. I mean, he must have, have had just this overwhelming presence about him in, in such a way that he could stop everyone in a crowd that size. You know, no one was getting through. And not only was he quiet a man, but it also reveals to us the passion that he has for God. Again, three years earlier when he cleansed the temple the first time, John would later write that Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy regarding uh, the Messiah's zeal for God's house. John writes 217, uh, John's quoting Psalm 69.9. And, and John writes, zeal for my house has eaten me. Uh, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Again, fulfilling prophecy. Well, Matthew 21, verse 13. Matthew says, and he, Jesus, said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. So once again, you know, uh, as we piece together the other gospels to get, you know, a more fuller picture of what went on, Mark eleven seventeen says this, it says, then he taught, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus sees this whole situation as a teaching opportunity. He didn't scream out with a loud, angry voice, my house, you know, it's gonna be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. That's not what he does. What does he do? He teaches them. Teaching others is a tremendous act of love. Jesus stops all the haggling. All the selling and buying stops, right? All, all this was driven out of this court of the Gentiles. And Jesus takes this opportunity to teach the people. Jesus, the son of God in the house of God, turns the people to the word of God. You know, he points them to the word of God and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Jesus calling the temple my house, it was a clear uh, claim of deity made by him. And you can't miss that. For him to say that the temple was his house, that's Jesus claiming to be God. It's an unmistakable claim of deity. People will often come to us and say, you know, Jesus never uh, claimed to be God. Not true. We can take them to this passage right here. Jesus very clearly claimed to be God, very clearly claimed to be the Son of God, and he also very clearly claimed to be the promised Messiah. Well, Jesus, verse 13, said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. The Jewish people got to the point that they primarily saw the temple only as a place of sacrifice. 
And it's true that that was one of the, the purposes of the temple was to sacrifice. But what was the primary purpose of the sacrifice? Right? The primary purpose of the sacrifice was to allow sinful man to draw near a holy God. The purpose of the sacrifice was always so that man could commune with God. You know, and when man communes with God, it's called prayer. You know, um, the purpose of the temple was to sacrifice, but that wasn't the end of it, right? That wasn't to be the end of it. The purpose of the sacrifice was to make it so people could commune with God so that they could come and offer their praise and thanksgiving to God so that they could pour out their hearts to God, you know, present their petitions to him so that the people of God could enter into his presence and pray and seek uh, his face. You know, it's the same thing with the church, God's church, Calvary Chapel, Truckee. It's to be a, a house of prayer. You know, do you remember uh, Jesus? Do we remember Jesus' sacrifice? Yes, of course we do. And Jesus cautioned us uh, never to forget his sacrifice. You know, we're to come to the communion table, uh, and that's often, and, and that's why communion is offered every week here at Calvary Chapel, Truckee. But we're instructed as we take the bread and the cup in, in our hand, Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me. We're to never forget what Jesus did for us. And the Bible says when we're taking communion and, uh, you know, the plan was to take communion this morning. Uh, you know, our heart is that the last Sunday of every month we would take communion, receive communion as a body. But the Bible says, you know, that when we take that bread and the cup in our hand, we're to receive communion until he comes. First Corinthians eleven twenty six says that, you know. There's to be an anticipation that one day we're going to stop taking communion. The last time we'll receive communion will be with Jesus. And we won't be remembering and looking back anymore. It will have all been fulfilled. And one day we'll receive communion in his presence. How wonderful will that be? I mean, just think about that for a minute. Man, how glorious will that day be? But not only is the church to be a place where we're to remember the Lord's sacrifice. And, and again, what a shame it would be if all we focused on was that there was a sacrifice made for us. The purpose of the sacrifice is so that we can commune with God, so that we could pray, so that we could know God and talk to him, so that we could pour out our hearts to him, talk to him about the things going on in our lives, talk to him about the things going on in our families and our marriages. Talk to him about our physical health, the things that are going on in our workplace and in our businesses. You know, God wants the church to be a place where we celebrate his sacrifice, but that's just, that just brings us to God. That's where the fellowship and the prayers begin. You know, God's house is to be a place where there's a great emphasis on prayer. Every Saturday night here at the church, we have a, a prayer meeting. And we're going to be announcing soon a prayer and worship meeting here at the church. It'll probably take place the first Saturday night of the month. And as we grow larger, you know, as a church, as we grow larger, it's my heart that we have 
you know, a, a time of prayer and worship every morning at the church. But um, all of this is because we know that God's house is to be a house of prayer, right? Every Saturday night at our underground prayer meeting, we pray that the Holy Spirit uh, will move mightily in the church. You know, we pray for the men's study. We pray for the women's study. We pray for uh, Sunday mornings that the hearts of people will be open and everyone will be able to see clearly our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for the life groups. And as I said last week, you know what? You need to do everything you can possibly do to connect and plug in with one of those life groups. Every Saturday night, we pray for individuals. We pray for marriages. We pray for the sick and we pray for the hurting. And I just want to tell you, with absolutely nothing but love in my heart, you know, if you're not taking part of those prayer meetings on, on Saturday night, you're missing out. And, uh, you know, there's no condemnation intended at all with that when I say that, you know. It's from a pastor's heart wanting to see you uh, grow and thrive in all that God has for you. You know, God wants us to be a house of prayer. And uh, we can do a lot as a church after we pray, but we can't do uh, much of anything of eternal significance before we pray. Matthew records Jesus in our text saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But Mark now adds another level of detail. He records Jesus saying, Mark eleven seventeen. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Prayer is where we get our hearts aligned with what God wants to do uh, in the church. What he uh, is wanting to do through us in the town of Truckee and, and how he wants to use us uh, to reach the world. And make no mistake about it. God's heart is for the world and he wants to use this church to uh, reach out to the world. It's God's heart that we would be a people of prayer and that this church would be a house of prayer for all nations. God's heart is for all nations of the world and he desires that our hearts would burn with the desire to see uh, men everywhere saved. And the reason he desires that is because that's his heart. Paul wrote to Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying, 1 Timothy 2.4, that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants every man everywhere to come to repentance. And we should share that heart of God and pray that, that he would use us towards that end. You know, Jesus gave us the a uh, great commission, Matthew 28. And there's only a few of you here, I know that. So I'm gonna put you all on the spot. What did he commission us to do? He gave us a great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of what? Of all nations. That's exactly at Matthew 28, 19. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We're to have, you know, an eye and a heart for the nations. And, you know, people are often tempted to say, yeah, you know what, I see that. I agree with that. That's what we're supposed to do. 
but who am I that God would use me, you know, among the nations? You know what? I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a Bible teacher. I'm not this. I'm not that. And, and you know what? I would ask you, please, hear my heart, you know, when I say this. Because I say it out of love. All of those things are excuses. Right? God is able to do very much with very little. You know, I'm walking, talking proof of that. Right? I, I promise you, if we'll give ourselves to prayer, God will do more in us and through us than we ever dared to imagine. So much more, each of us will be astonished at what he's willing to do if we'll just seek his face and adopt his heart. You know what? Don't you want to see God do exceedingly, abundantly, above anything we could even dare to imagine or ask him for. You know what? The church, our church is to be a house of prayer for all nations, right? God wants to do great things with us. Now, the temple was a place where the Gentiles, the nations would come and recognize that the sacrifices were for them too, right? And that they could have fellowship with the Holy God. Understanding God's heart for the nations and for prayer is something that we as a church need to actively pursue. And, and again, let me just be upfront with this too. God's heart is for the world. We cannot overlook the world to solely focus on Truckee. And we cannot overlook Truckee to exclusively focus on the world. It's not an either or kind of thing. We, we're to seek God's face and his heart for how he wants to use us to reach out to Truckee and the world. Well, you just think about how grieving it was for Jesus to see all of this going on in the temple. How grieving it must have been for Jesus to see, uh, you know, what it was like for the nations to come into that court that was supposed to be for them, seeing all the greed, seeing all the corruption, you know, the irreverence for God. Uh, the, the nations coming into that court must have made them want to have nothing to do with the God of Israel because of all the things that were going on there and how that must have broke uh, the heart of Jesus. The only time in the Bible that we see Jesus even the least bit angry is when people become an obstacle to others coming to God, when people become barriers in the way of others coming to him. And Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Instead of being a place of prayer, and we'll never go wrong as a church uh, being a, a house of prayer because Jesus can't stay away from a place of prayer. It's irresistible uh, to him when his people are praying. But instead of the temple being a place of prayer, it became a den of thieves. It became a safe haven for uh, robbers, you know, a refuge for thieves. You know, the religious leaders and the priests, they were making money through taking advantage of those who were coming to worship the Lord. It's been estimated that Annas, who was high priest before he gave the position to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was making an equivalent of $3 million a year in today's money off of the sale of these 
temple-approved uh, sacrifices. You know, and, and honestly, it probably started out fairly innocently. You know, we can make it easier for people by having sacrifices here for them to buy. You know, that, that way they don't have to worry about bringing their own sacrifices. So, you know, let's provide uh, something for them. It'll just be so much easier. But then the corruption began to creep in and they began to think, you know, we can make a little extra money for the temple, you know, to keep up temple maintenance if we just charge a little bit of extra for each one of these sacrifices. And they begin to rationalize what they were doing. They rationalize their corruption. They rationalize their behavior. And you know what? The truth of the matter is most dishonest people, most people who are lying and stealing, most people who are cheating and taking advantage of others, people who are engaged in sin, they just rationalize it. You know, it's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. You know, it's, it's the stinking government and our leaders. They're the ones that make us do what, what I'm doing. You know, she, she drives me to it. You know, I only do it because he does it to me, right? I'm not the only one. Everyone's doing it. You know, they just rationalize it. And you know, what I'm doing, you know, I'm, it isn't hurting anybody. You know, they just rationalize their behavior. And they do what they do because they've concluded, hey, it's not really a big deal. It's okay uh, to do it because of, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But the reality is it's corruption and it's wrong. They rationalize it. And that's what the priesthood was doing here. And the temple became a safe place for those that are robbing the people and ripping off the nations. Well, verse 14 says, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The whole system of corruption ceased that day when Jesus taught, you know? And what happened? The blind and the lame came to him, right? And he healed them. What a wonderful savior Jesus is. You know, his grace and compassion goes beyond what can be measured. And I honestly believe if we'll give ourselves to being a house of prayer, God will bring the blind and the lame to us in order that they might be healed, in order that they might hear the gospel and be saved. And I honestly believe if we'll pray and seek God's heart, He'll set in a revival like we've never experienced. You know, Tina and I, we've been part of two revivals and, and I want to be part of another one. You know what? Uh, how I desire to see God do it again, to move mightily in our midst here at Calvary Chapel, Truckee. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna, to the son of David, they were indignant. I mean, talk about hard hearts. Seeing what Jesus had done, putting a stop to the sin and corruption, teaching, healing, and restoring people back to health. Jesus did only what the Messiah could do. And it was obvious who Jesus was. 
Even the children recognized him and responded to him by praising him and proclaiming him to be the son of David, the promised Messiah. But the chief priests and the scribes were indignant. Man, you know what? The blindest people are the people who refuse to see. Verse 16, and the chief priest and the scribes said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you've uh, perfected praise? You know, we went over similar ground last week when we looked at Jesus's triumphal entry and fulfilled prophecy. And if you weren't here, I encourage you to go to the website. Uh, you can watch that teaching there. In fact, you can watch all the teachings there on the website. But the priests and the scribes, they wanted Jesus to put a stop to what the people were doing. But Jesus takes them to the word again. I just love it, right? He doesn't yell and scream at them. He, his, he strengthened their control. He doesn't argue and fight with them. You know, as I previously said, Jesus, the Son of God, and the house of God takes the people to the word of God. You know, what an example that is uh, to us. In verse 17, then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. You know, I love this story because it's a great picture of the entire sacrificial system, right? The whole system stopped after all the people were driven out, after all the temple-approved sacrifices were driven out, after all the corruption was brought to a halt in the temple. And what was left there in the temple? Just Jesus. You know what? Not a sacrifice for a couple, a family, or a nation. All that was left was what John the Baptist said was, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? Here in the middle of the temple was the Lamb of God, the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. All that was left in the temple was Jesus, his teaching, and people who were being healed and touched by God, their lives being changed forever. It was all prophetic. It won't actually be many years from this event that the temple will be destroyed. The sacrificial system will come to an end. And the only thing that will remain is the Lamb of God and his teaching on how to be right with God. And people all over being healed and restored, having their lives changed forever. The last thing that you know I wanna mention, and I think it's very interesting to notice, once the cleansing took place, the healing began. Isn't that interesting? Once things stopped, once things were overturned, once things were dealt with and driven out, then the cleansing, uh, you know, took place. And those uh, who were lame received um, healing, right? Those who were blind, they received their sight, right? We're going to, you know, take communion every week as a church, right? Every week we take communion. And it's during that time of communion with the Lord that's the time that we're to ask ourselves, is there something that needs to be dealt with in my life? You know, is there something that's not right in my life? 
Is there something going on in my life or in my family, you know, that I'm just rationalizing, right? Yeah, sure, that's going on, but it's okay because of this and that, you know? It's nothing, it's no big deal because of X, Y, and Z, whatever. You know, that's the time that we're to ask ourselves, is, there, is it possible that there's something that's going on in your life that I'm trying to rationalize away that's not right? And in that moment, I think we need to ask ourselves, could I even hear the voice of the Lord, right? If he wanted to put his finger on something or is that particular issue, you know, off limits? You know, we all struggle with sin. You know, none of us are perfect, but, um, you know, are we willing to let Jesus into every area of our life? You know, are there areas of our lives that are, uh, you know, off limits, he's not allowed to enter into. You know, I don't know where anyone is this morning in your walk with the Lord that are here or watching online right now. I don't know where your walks are in the Lord, but you know, the Lord has really been impressing on my heart that there are people in our church, people in our midst that are struggling, that they're just breaking. You know, marriages are struggling, hearts are breaking. People in our church who have big things in their hearts that need to be overturned. And it's interesting that three years earlier, Jesus cleansed the temple. And here, three years later, it's just a mess again. You know, what happened? Well, what happened was they failed to keep the main thing the main thing. And they just allowed the corruption slowly but surely to creep back in. You know, it's a common story. God deals with things in our lives. He deals with sin in our lives. And if we're not careful, it just creeps back into our lives, right? It's very subtle and it can be almost imperceptible. But you know, when we take a communion, when we take the communion, when we hold the bread and the cup in our hands, you know, that's a time where we should just do business with the Lord. And even we're not taking communion today, but this is a time that all of us should just prayerfully be just consider, you know, Lord, is that what's going on in my life? You know, lo and behold, the things that God has delivered me from, are they the things that have crept back into my life? Things that, you know, he's dealt with in your life previously. Have they crept back in? You know, are you doing those things again? And are you in need of cleansing again? You know, if that's the case, guess what? Cleansing will come followed by healing, right? We can't let the enemy rob us with any type of shame or argument causing guilt. You know, there's no shame in coming to Jesus and confessing our sins, right? Asking him for his healing touch upon our lives. The only shame that, the only shameful thing is to not come to Jesus and not uh, confess your sins, you know, and, and not receive healing. But just going through life, putting on this, just this religious outward appearance when you know inside your heart is corrupt, right? You know, if you're a half-hearted believer, the Bible says, you know, and if you're an unbeliever, the Bible says you should let communion pass. When, when we're taking communion as a church, you should let it pass. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 
And it continues saying in verse 29, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. You know what? When we're receiving communion as a church, when we offer it as a church, man, if you're not a believer or a half-hearted believer, lukewarm commitment to the Lord, man, it's better to let that communion pass. But what's even better yet is to come to the Lord, confess your sins, come to Jesus, be healed, be forgiven, and then enjoy communion as, as part of the family of God. You know, if you're not a believer this morning and you would like to receive Christ as your, as your Savior, you know what? It's, it's not a list of things that you have to do. You know, it's just saying a prayer from your heart, telling him that you're sorry for your sins, and then uh, make a commitment to follow him as a Savior. You know, it's just telling him that you're sorry for your sins and, and, and confessing that you believe that he sent Christ to die on the cross for your sins, that you believe that he died, was buried, and on the third day rose again. And then ask him to fill you with the Holy Spirit and give you the power to say no to sin and give you the power to walk in fellowship with him. You know, that's what God's heart is for us as individuals, is to have this relationship with him and as a church to be a house of prayer for the nations, right? That's all I got. Let's go ahead and pray. This is where I would call the worship team forward right now. Let's pray. Father, I pray like David, Lord, that you would search us and know us, that you would try us, that you would go deep in our hearts and, and reveal to us, Lord, if there's anything that, that needs to be straightened out with you, if there's some sin in our hearts and lives that, that we're rationalizing, that we're, that we're making excuses for, Lord, that you want to deal with, Lord, I pray that even now, God, we would deal with those things. Forgive us, Lord, for a half-hearted commitment, a lukewarm commitment. Lord, set our hearts on fire for you. Lord, I pray as a church that we would catch the vision to be a house of prayer. Lord, the secret to success in Christ's kingdom is the ability to pray, E.M. Bound said. Lord, work that in us. Work us in our hearts just an understanding of the power that's available to us in the name of Christ as we come and seek your face and have our hearts aligned with yours, Lord. Make us a house of prayer. Make us a house of prayer for the nations. Give us your heart for the, the hurting and the broken and the, the outcasts of this world. Give us a heart for those that don't know you. Lord, give us a heart for our neighbors next door, across the street, down the street, to invite them to church. Give us a heart to share the gospel with them. Lord, use us mightily for your glory, for your kingdom. Use this word. Let it go deep into our heart again to search us, Lord. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.